Downloads of this show are available on Potomatic.com and the Potomatic mobile app. to Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is a show about life's inflection points hosted by me, Asha Saluja. It's about the crossroads in our lives, which paths we choose when we reach them, and where those choices lead us or don't. We'll talk about the decisions we agonized over and the decisions we didn't even realize we were making until years after we made them. We'll talk about how we decide things, how we weigh our options, or how we tap into our intuitions. And we'll talk about the degree to which our choices matter. Do we have any control over the things that alter our fate? Or do we end up in the same place no matter which roads we take? On each show, I have a guest tell me about all the big decisions they've ever made in order. We start with birth, fast forward to their first big decision, and map out the road their life has taken as a series of these inflection points or junctions. Today's guest is someone who I think will have uh, quite a, a a long spanning geographically road to take us down. Uh, Amna Shamim is a digital nomad, writer, and visibility consultant. You've seen her places like Glamour Magazine, HuffPost, Business Insider, and maybe even on Instagram. She works with local and e-commerce businesses to improve their visibility and conversation with their current and future clients. She's now pivoting to help those in the cannabis industry, both with marketing and through Mastermind to Grow, the mastermind specifically for women in the cannabis industry. Amna, hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you here. Amna somebody who I know just kind of from the internet and have uh, watched Nomad from afar, I guess. And I feel like from what I can tell, you've become somewhat of a thought leader on how to live that lifestyle. Okay, so the first question on Bushwick Junction is, tell me about the circumstances into which you were born. Oh, that's, um, so as far as I know, all of this information is accurate. I was born in Pakistan in 1983 to, obviously, my mother and father. Uh, I was the, at the time, the fourth of four. Wow. And it was interesting. It was for context, my mother is a Jew. Oh, wow. And my father is Muslim. Uh-huh. And so growing up, there was a lot of both cultures, mm. which which made it interesting and made me aware of the outside world, even as a little kid, because we would come to the States every summer and my mother's relatives would visit and send us books. And it was not the typical childhood. 
Was your mom born in the U.S.? My mom was born in New York, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you have already when you're born, like a variety of cultures to choose from and sort of uh, pick pieces from that resonate with you. There's an expression, third culture kid. Have yeah. you heard of it? Yeah. I I didn't know there were other people out there like that until mm. I heard the expression and dug into it and really understood that I wasn't the only one who mm-hmm. got really confused growing up about what was going on. Yeah. Um, I have a similar background, but we'll talk about it later because this show isn't about me. So I, I, though, I can relate to how uh, this colors the rest of your decisions going forward because I think coming from two cultures and having a third one all around you gives you just this idea that there are far more options than most people around you uh, perceive for themselves. And a lot of confusion about norms. Absolutely. And the confusion about norms can be harmful and scary when you're younger, but really freeing and freeing and exciting once you embrace them, I think. Yeah, once you realize you don't necessarily have to pick and you can have more than one thing. Mm. That's... Let's keep that thought in mind. So tell me about the first big decision you ever made. Okay, so this is when I was just before my ninth birthday. We moved to the States, which was really significant because we didn't just move to the U.S. It was the moment where my parents separated. Mm. So we, and by we, I mean the children, all of us, moved to the U.S. with my mother. And my father stayed behind in Pakistan. And over the course of a few years, there was some conversation about whether we we would go back, whether he would come to the U.S., whether the marriage was over. I was not aware of any of this as a kid. I wasn't aware of a lot of what was happening because I was having a lot of culture shock with this move. I was close to my father and my father's parents, and I, as a child, had felt very comfortable in Pakistan. And so we moved to the U.S. to a small town in Pennsylvania. Um, What a a night and day difference. Huge. To move from one of the biggest cities in the world to a small town in Pennsylvania where I had a funny accent because I went to uh, grammar school. Mm. And I looked different and I didn't I didn't understand a lot of the cultural context. I understood some of the history, but not the right cartoons and movies. Mm. And and so we were in the U.S. and I was having a really, really hard time adjusting. And I remember this so clearly. My mother one night pulled me aside and we were sitting upstairs in the living room. And she said, you know, I know you're having a really hard time here and you're not adjusting And that you are really homesick and you miss Pakistan. You miss the life that we had there. And if you want, I will will send you back. I will let you go back. But you should know that I, at this point, am not going. And your siblings are not going. So if you choose to go, you will be going alone. And I didn't, I didn't go. I stayed. And I think in a lot of ways, that was a That was a really big turning point for me because now this was my decision. This wasn't something I was dragged along on. Do you remember it being instantaneous or was there some debate? Sorry, you mentioned, but how old were you? It was, I don't know exactly how old I was at the time. I was probably nine or 10. So like late elementary school, maybe. Late elementary school. And that's, I can only imagine what it took for my mother to come to terms with the idea of, I will let one of my children go. Right. Her youngest. Mm -mm, Not at that point. At that Mm. point, I now had 
two younger brothers. Oh, wow. <laughs> I have a lot of siblings. Okay. Um, there are five of us. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it was instantaneous. I like to think that it was. In my reconstructed memory of some of this, I remember feeling like, oh, no, I must have said I'll stay immediately. But maybe I didn't. I, I'm often slow to decide things. So maybe I took some time. What so we we are only relying on reconstructed memory of that moment, but what do you think you took forward with you from that moment as part of your identity? Were you like, okay, I'm staying here, so now I I'm an American? Oh no, no, that was hmm. not what happened. <laughs> but I think what happened was it was the first time I realized how important my siblings are to me. Like you oh. sort of take them for granted. Um and not that I was a pleasant teenager, let's be clear about that. But on some level, I really knew that my siblings were really, really important to me. Mm. And I wanted to be near them, even if it was just so we could fight. I wanted to be where my family was. And to me, that's first and foremost, my siblings. That's really special. Did any of you ever talk about both wanting or many, multiple of you wanting to to go back? I was the only one who hmm. wanted to. My older siblings had decided not to. Like, they definitely did not want to go back for various reasons, which are theirs. So I'll leave those out. And my younger siblings were too young. And um, one was three and one was, I think, six, right. probably at the time. So much too young. Also very close to my mother, whereas I had been closer to my father when I was younger. So I think on this show sometimes about the uh, alternate reality version of the decision you made. And if that's interesting to you at all, we can explore the back in Pakistan version of Amna. You know what's funny, actually? Um, several years later, when I was in college, mm -hmm. I met this woman who was from the school I had gone to, from the same city, and had moved in my social group. Hmm. And she had moved there after I had left. So I and I'm sure this is completely inaccurate, but in my head, I looked at her and went, this is what my life would have been like. Mm. And I'm glad I stayed. Wow. Not, not because I, not anything detrimental about her or, but I looked at her life and I looked at mine and I was, I am a lot happier with the life that I have now and the person I am who I wouldn't be had I not had the experiences that I've had along the way. What do you think is a key difference between that person and the person you could have been? Um, she lives in Pakistan and is married and has kids. And I'm in a different country every month to three months. And I love, I love my travel. You love your life. I love my life. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because the circumstances of your birth and kind of what the family you came from already uh, put you on a path toward not the non-prescriptiveness of the society around you. So it's like, would you have been the person in Pakistan with married and kids, or would you have always understood that there was another option for you out there? I don't know that I would have. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, my sister is married with kids and has a really great job and the right husband and all of that stuff. And she's very happy mm -hmm. and her kids are great and her life is good and I'm happy for her. But I think having had her as an example and being in a more traditional place where everybody expected the same things, I think it would have been much harder to, to make 
the life choices that I have, which my family, my mother's side of the family thinks are crazy. So really? I can only, oh yeah. I mean, in a very loving, supportive way, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> Love you, but you're crazy. Yeah. Well, let's get to those. So what's the next big decision you want to talk about? Um, the next big decision, well, I want to make a little comment that after that big decision, I just sort of didn't decide for a long time. And I just sort of went wherever life took me, hmm. which non-decisions I have learned are a form of decision. And Absolutely. A terrible one. <laughs> well, I'm curious about those because I feel like sometimes we see things as non-decisions, but really what they were were decisions to not break the mold. Like, I, I don't know that they're as totally unconscious as we later convince themselves convince ourselves they were maybe it's possible i haven't actually thought about it that way what were some non-decisions you felt like you made well um so like the non-decision of moving to new york after college because it was you know close to my family and i wanted to be close to my family and i didn't really decide what i wanted to do for grad school so i never made it to grad school hmm. and those sort of things, no, I didn't decide what I wanted for a career, so I sort of had a eh, career. I had a job, not a career. Yeah. Yeah, that one, that one's a, it really is a non-decision. It's like the the lack of ability to throw yourself in a direction. But you talk about moving to New York, which some people have come on this show and told me my biggest and greatest decision ever was moving to New York. And it's funny that you think of that as like a default, you know? Well, it felt like a default because in college I spent my summers here, mm -hmm. most of them. Um, and so it was easy. I have family here, mostly my mother's side. Mm. And I had friends and I had the ability to show up and get a temp job really easily. And so it was super easy to show up here after college. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And because I know from our sneak preview that your next big decision is the one to sort of leave New York and travel the world, I'm starting to think of this new definition of a decision as something that's like, it's hard. Like, if something's easy, maybe it feels like a decision, but maybe that's not the, the most interesting kind. Well, I'm going to also just jump and say, I realize that the most important thing I've realized about decisions is that almost nothing can't be changed. Mm. So you can make a decision and even if it's a really big one, there are pivots you can make. So just because you're going in this direction doesn't mean that's the only direction you can go. Like maybe you can't reverse back out and pick something completely different, but you can pivot a little bit and make it something else. Like had I gone to law school and realized I didn't want to be a lawyer, I could have become a professor or I could have gone into, I mean, I don't even know because yeah. I haven't researched this, but there are other things <laughs> you can do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's just such incredible advice. It's like so much of what scares us about making big decisions is the idea that we can't get out of it. Like it, everything feels permanent, like jumping off a cliff, but instead it's probably more like just making a right on the end, end of the block and you can always turn back left if you need to. Exactly. And you won't be this, going the same direction. You won't see exactly the same sites as if you had made the left three blocks ago. Mm -hmm. But you'll see other sites and yeah. some of them will be amazing. Wow. 
that's that that might be the pinnacle of our conversation. That's such wonderful advice. What a great podcast this has been. <laughs> I hope we didn't peak too early. So your next big decision, uh, let's talk about it. Okay, so then my next big decision, I graduated from college, moved to New York, and I'd been living here about a decade. And um, this is not how I recommend making decisions. Okay. But I had had a bone and gum graft, which is really painful and awful, and I don't recommend. And I was very high on post-surgery <laughs> painkillers. Um, and I was not happy with my living situation and I'd gone through a breakup and I was feeling restless because even when I lived in New York, I took off for uh, Asia for a month. I moved to Egypt to study Arabic for a month before. Travel has always been important to me. And I thought, you know, I've only lived in New York. I have friends who live in Chicago and San Francisco and Portland and Seattle. Like I should go look at some other places. And while I was recovering from um, the surgery, I looked up some plane tickets and I bought a bunch. While high on medication. While very high on pain medication. Um, best decision you ever made. And you, second best. Okay. I still think staying in the States was the best. Okay. Um, and so I, I originally left New York. This was a decision in pieces because I decided to pack up my life and end things here and move somewhere else. But I went to Chicago, I went to Portland, I went to Seattle and San Francisco, and I think all the way up to Vancouver. And then I decided to go to London to see my sister and Paris to see my college roommate. And then I decided to go to Asia. And then finally, I decided I wasn't coming back. How How is this working? So did you have to quit a job to start these travels? No, I had always freelanced. Okay. So... I didn't actually tell my clients I was leaving. Mm. I just sort of scheduled anything I had to do in person within a couple days and then would swing through New York Gotcha. on my way back. Um, so nobody knew I had left for about six months. Perfect. Yeah, it was great. And was working on the road relatively easy for you? Not at first. Um yeah, just not at first because this, I had always worked from home. This was before co-working spaces and things were as common as they are now. And so I hadn't been in the habit of figuring out exactly what I needed in order to be able to be productive. And I learned a lot of that on the road in the first six months. Yeah. Talk about time management. It's like all the normal slate of responsibilities that a freelancer has plus the, the stress of travel all combined into a daily lifestyle. Yeah. And um, the really fun part of, oh, God, is my internet fast enough for this? <laughs> so, yeah, that'll teach you real quick. So at what point in these travels did you have to like, did it feel like a turning point? Like, did you give up an apartment? I gave up an apartment when I left. Immediately. Yeah. I I had been living with some pretty, I'm just going to say it, pretty awful people <laughs> and when I left, it was part of the reason I left is I was looking at moving into my own place again anyway. And I thought, oh, well, while I'm between apartments, mm. it'll be easier to get one in a few months and I'll just take this time. And this is, and it, it, it did make sense, although the decision-making process was a bit impaired. Um, and so I didn't have an apartment. I haven't had an apartment in New York in over four years. Wow. Um, 
Wow. So we're really talking about a series of incremental decisions, which is so exciting. These are those small pivots. Yeah. I thought maybe I'll move to Chicago or, you know, San Francisco. And now I'm like, maybe I'll move everywhere. (laughs) I'll just, I'll just live everywhere. It's great. Wow. Do you remember the moment that idea of living everywhere was implanted in your mind? I don't, but I remember learning that I wasn't the only one. When was that? How did you come across this subculture? So I um, I was already headed to Asia, and my brother sent me a message saying, oh, there's this Slack group for people who travel. At, oh, no, sorry, that's not actually true. There's this trip of people who are traveling and working. And isn't it cool? And I thought my younger brother should be traveling more. So I said, I'm going to join them. And I did kind of to troll him. <laughs> but some of the people I met on that trip are just really incredible. And I'm still in touch with them four years later. And I visited them in Montreal and caught up with them in, uh, I think in London. And it also, and oh, I caught up with another one of them in Romania this summer. Wow. So just realizing you're not the only crazy one is, it's helpful. And this was in Asia. This was in Asia. These are people I met for the first time in Vietnam. Cool. And so you learned kind of through them and through their networks, what it was to be a digital nomad. Um, it feels like you four years ago might may have been on the cutting edge of the term almost. I think four years ago, the term was really new. I don't think, now this is my ego probably, but I don't think they came to me and said, and this is how you nomad. Of course. But the fact that I could point to other people and one of them has actually written a bunch of articles as well that had been published um, in Entrepreneur at the time, Jay, whose last name I don't know how to pronounce correctly. Sorry, Jay. Um, and so I was able to point to my family and say, look, look, this is a person. Here I am in a photo with him. He's real and I know him and he's written about this. And Entrepreneur Magazine thinks it's real enough to publish it. Mm. So this is real. I am not the only crazy person Parents love love a good print magazine article. They really do. <laughs> My grandmother was a big fan of being able to point to, like the Glamour magazine article was in the print edition. Oh. And that's when she stopped thinking I was completely crazy. That's amazing. Um, so the work you're doing this whole time, was it writing all the while? Um, so I had been working in New York, doing a lot of different things as one does. But a lot of the work I had been doing was editing. And so... That was the next big decision was not going back. I had had some health problems and I needed to take a little bit of time and it allowed me to assess what made me happy and what didn't. And travel was clearly making me very happy, but the work I was doing was not. And so I decided I'm going to change and what is going to make me happy and allow me to live a lifestyle that I'm comfortable with. So let's zoom in on all of that a little bit before we get into it. The first question I have is, like, what was the first feeling of this isn't making me happy? And what was your initial response to it? I feel like um, I'm not sure whether you have this because it's you seem like someone who's really willing to go for things. But it feels like the first response to this isn't making me happy is often will like, you're ungrateful, try harder to be happy or something like that. Oh, um, I don't know that I was like, this is, you're ungrateful in my internal dialogue, mm-hmm. but I was like, well, you're lazy and mm. this is work that's 
I was very lucky in that a lot of my work came to me because people would recommend me. And so I didn't have to hustle. And I was earning an acceptable amount of money. And so I was really lazy for a long time. And I just kept doing the work I was doing. And it it was enough. And I could supplement it with bartending or, you know, handing out flyers on the street <laughs> as a promotional model. Or it was It was easy. And when I started focusing more on the things that made me happy um, because being cold doesn't make me happy. So now being able to be where I'm warm or choosing to be cold for another reason, hmm. that makes me happy. Wow. And doing the work that I do now makes me happy um, because I feel like I'm able to have an impact. Whereas the work I was doing before was really not making me happy. And when I sat down and looked at it, I wasn't going to earn more money. I sort of capped out what I could earn without making some sort of pivot or going back to school in some way. And my clients weren't especially awesome. Like they weren't bad people, Mm -hmm. but the work wasn't intellectually stimulating or entertaining or enjoyable. And there was never a point at which I got to look at something and be like, wow, I did that. That's awesome. Right. Yeah. That's so familiar. That feeling of like, this is fine, but I'm not proud of it. I don't want to brag about it. Yeah, I never used to talk about my work. I think a lot of people didn't know what I did for work because my attitude was, I'm only getting paid for this once. So, Fascinating. And you talked about how you first started in this line of work and how it was kind of a non-decision. Was there any part of you that was looking out for what made you happy when you first started on your career path? When I first started on the work I had been doing in New York, um, I just wanted to be in New York and go to Broadway shows and live in the big city and experience it. And so I think originally that made me happy. Mm -hmm. And the work was just the means through which I got the money to do the things that made me happy. Yeah. And when those things stopped being enough, I had neither the career nor these other things. And when I... And I was in a rut. And when I started traveling, I had enough distance to look at it and say, this isn't serving. Like the money part of it isn't enough. And it's not important enough to me because I realized I can go live in Thailand for super cheap Mm. if I need to, because I'm starting again. Right. So. So I think that the biggest challenge you've described so far or what I imagine could have been the biggest challenge you've described so far is going through the process of determining if this isn't making me happy, what will? Was that difficult for you? Because it sounds really hard. It's really hard. Uh, Yes, 100%. But I also personally found it really worthwhile because now I am really happy. Totally. So how did you do that? I got lucky. Okay. Um, I've always loved reading and writing. And so I started writing more and I started writing a couple pieces here and there. Remember, I was having some health things, so I couldn't work full time. Mm. And I happened, and this is the weirdest, most roundabout way. I had written a piece for a friend's friend's company and I got a message from her saying, what did you do to this piece? Because it's a ranking in Google for these keywords for New York City and we're getting traffic. I was like, huh, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I I wrote it. I wrote a thing that I would want to read and 
And so that's where I started. And I started learning about marketing and I started from the SEO perspective, Mm -hmm. which is, I will curb myself from going into a whole like love fest about marketing, but I approached it from the content and human side instead of just the numbers. I would go into your little love fest. Tell me a little bit more about that. I love it. I love marketing so much because to me, it's just about having a conversation with people. And if you know who you're speaking to and you know how to listen to them and give them what they're looking for, the information, the service, the whatever it is that they need, and having that that conversation, that dynamic, that trust, it's so powerful. And it's what I think a lot of companies are really screwing up. Wow. So being able to start there and have the space to learn about SEO, because SEO to me is learning, you learn, you know who is look. You know who you're trying to connect with. And then based on who they are, you know how they're searching and what they're looking for. And then you give them that so that they find you mm. and you're providing value first. You're, if you show up in an ad and how many of us just click right out of ads? Yeah, like, no one no one pays attention. To yeah, especially if it's not someone you already know and trust. Mm-hmm. So coming at it from that angle for me was so interesting. I read voraciously like probably a book or two a week when you throw in my audiobooks and everything mm. i have a degree in french and spanish literature wow so conversations and communication are so important to me and i got to spend a year really digging into that and going i love this how do i get someone to pay me for this how do i make a living wow what was that year like so as you're learning about it you started learning about seo and you're doing some research can you describe the feeling of of knowing that this was like a new thing that you were so excited about? Um, Okay, so a little context. I had a traumatic brain injury. That was the health thing I was recovering from. Wow. Yeah, and so that year I was processing a lot slower. Things were really hard for me. And sometimes now I struggle still, but I think a lot of what helped me was I was excited and I was learning. So I was making those connections again and drawing from past experiences. and. I would have this period where I had limited screen time because the light and strain from reading and I couldn't listen to really loud things or for long periods. Mm. And I would get so upset because I loved what I was learning about so much. I wanted to keep watching the talk from the conference. I wanted to keep reading this guide. I wanted to keep writing and seeing how this worked. Mm. And I hadn't had that experience since I was in school yeah. of not wanting to put the book down, not for something that mattered. Right. Like, I've stayed up till four in the morning reading a book more often than I want to admit to. Totally. But this was something that was interesting and work-related, which I'd never experienced before in my life. Wow. That's such a good benchmark when you have that feeling that you have when you're a little kid, when your parents like, all right, time to go to bed. And you're like, no, I want to stay up. If you can get paid to have that feeling. Like you have to go for it. Exactly. And I mean, I've always said I want to like what I do 60% of the time because nobody's going to love anything that they do 100% of the time. There's always going to be the boring paperwork or the invoicing or, you know, those are my things. But (laughs) there's going to be the stuff that you don't love as much. And that's okay. As long as you can be engaged and excited 60% of the time, I feel like you're really winning. Yeah. And I think I'm above that mark now, which is even more exciting. That's wonderful. That's a really good way to think about this. Uh, 
I feel like this show is just like me getting amazing people to come in here and give me the best advice. <laughs> um, so how has that decision begun to play out? Like, at, did you see success in that field immediately or were there points where you were like, mm, maybe this isn't right? I wouldn't say success immediately. Um, so I started, I've been writing and I, I still write less often now because I enjoy the strategy aspect more. But what I found really sad and really hard was as I was starting to try and pick up clients to help them with their marketing and at the beginning, primarily SEO, because I had yet to learn about all of the other aspects. Um, I realized there are a lot of people out there who don't know very much, but position themselves as experts hmm. because there's this concept of you only need to be a few pages ahead of somebody in order to be able to help them. Right. And that's true in a lot of things, but marketing's a really long-term, like you have to have really long-term vision and you have to see how all these different pieces fit together. And so I've met a lot of people who've been burnt pretty badly by people who say SEO, oh, that takes, you know, one to three years to really make things happen, which is true, but there should be able to be wins along the way that they can see. Like they're, they're progress points that if you're not hitting, you shouldn't be continuing to pay your person. Mm, and you feel like people who are positioning themselves as experts are sort of just sliding things under the rug by saying, oh, this takes three years. I don't think they're all doing it maliciously. Of course. Yeah. Right. But I do think I have spoken to a lot of people over the last couple of years who are so frustrated and don't trust people because they've trusted the wrong person. And I've seen this with, you know, everything really, but it made me very sad and frustrated at the beginning because I didn't, I didn't know why people wouldn't believe me that I could help them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. You, you get a sense in this industry that there are lots of people who have been burnt by people who aren't experts. What was your first year like? Like, how did you convince the first few people to pay you to do this when you hadn't really done it for money yet? Um, I didn't convince them to pay me. I tried to show them what I could do. I tried to provide a lot of value. And then once they saw that I knew what I was talking about, I would say, okay, now let's talk about paying me so you had to do a little bit of the work for free just you had to give out some free samples you had to give out some free samples it's the same for writing um, it's really the same for anything i think it's yeah that makes i mean i've only had the experience with these yeah these things. yeah i mean it's it's hard to start a new career as a grown-up person because you're not an expert and you can't command the same rates or but you know as you were making and whatever you're doing before so it kind of takes a small, humble step where you're willing to show people your worth. And if you're passionate about it, it's worth it. Totally. But if you're hopping around and doing something different every two years and you're still finding yourself, I think that makes it a lot harder. That makes sense. What was it like trying to find clients remotely? Oh, gosh, that's a, that's a huge pain in the butt. And it really? still is. Um, just going to be honest. Yeah, because again with remote when you're working remotely i've and apologies if i've shown up in your inbox or not apologies you should have written me back yeah but i have cold emailed a ton of people and i've realized and not cold emailed like i just bought their email list their email on a list and said i would go and i would find people like i would go and look at their websites and see what their marketing was like and say i can help this person i know that i can and mm -hmm. then i would email them 
And I've gotten some really angry responses. Just from a cold email? Just from a cold email. People need to calm down. You know what? They're having a bad day. It's okay. (laughs) It's not about me. But it's very, very hard. And so I'm lucky now where a lot of my work comes through referrals. I'm curious. when I So it sounds like you're describing the challenges of finding a client base in general. It's, It's a hard industry. But it was easier when I was in New York because when I would show up and chat with someone in person, there Mm -hmm. was a credibility to me. Whereas a cold email, I'm a nameless, I'm a faceless person who could be and probably is anywhere in the world. And so what's the accountability if they give me money and I don't deliver? Yeah. Versus I, you know, I meet someone even at a bar in New York, they have seen my face. They know that I, maybe I've shown up at the office to have the conversation. It's, it is different. That makes sense. Do you think that online communities like the Slack group you mentioned and the one that we met through are really helpful in these ways? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's been, what I've, one of the things I've really had to learn being remote is how to network online more and how to be a good community member online Hmm. because it's important. Yeah, it's important. And I think increasingly, you just mentioned meeting, you know, if I met someone at a bar, I don't think I've ever happenstantially met someone unless, you know, it was like a networking event, right? I'm sure that as a freelancer, this would happen to you more often because you're constantly in a place of um, looking for new work, whereas I'm, that's kind of not my day to day. But I think that people are so eager to meet each other online and ever so slightly m- less excited to network in person these days i think that's a now thing i think um and now i'm feeling old but (laughs) when i moved to new york a long time ago um i'm i've met people that i've dated like on a bus (laughs) and on a porch stoop when i was like i've met people and maybe that's just me and i have a lot of weird experiences but I didn't know how to engage online in the same way. And I think people who are um, younger, people yeah, who are coming out of college. People who are just slightly younger don't know how to do that in person and feel much more comfortable behind a screen. Which is great. And I'm just going to learn how to have that level of comfort. Yeah, it's great for you because you don't have to be in New York where it's cold to talk to them. <laughs> it is so cold right now. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's helpful. But it is hard. It's it's a lot. It's a, there's a lot happening online. And when you belong to different communities and Facebook overwhelms me a little bit because I belong to, you know, the Buenos Aires expat group and the one in Medellin and the one in Romania. And the one, it's like, I wish there was a way, Facebook, if you're listening, for me to just mass mute and unmute groups when I'm showing <laughs> up and leaving. That sounds like a tricky but wonderful problem to have to be a member of too many communities. Can you paint for us a little bit, you you just mentioned these three places, uh, a little bit of a map of all the communities you've been in in and out of, or like a small geographic tour of where you've been? Sure. Let me just tell you my flight route for 2018. So let's see, where was I in January? In January, I was in Colombia, except I went to Peru with my cousins and did Machu Picchu. Wow. And then we went back to Cartagena and I stayed in Colombia and then I went up to Mexico for March. And then I flew up to New York for a week for my nephew's 10th birthday. And then I went to London. And then I went to 
Lisbon and then flew through Madrid on my way to a small town in northern Spain, Paris, Brussels, Romania, London. Oh, wait, I missed Palma somewhere in there. <laughs> Back to London. Um, Toronto, the DR, Toronto, Columbia, here. Whew. And that's a slow year. That's fabulous. So what's your cadence like? When? How often are you wanting to pick up and move? I like moving every week. Wow. I, yeah, no, it's terrible. My business coach has made me slow down. I'm allowed to move now every one to three months with the goal of getting to the point where I'm sitting still and being focused and engaging in all of the things that are around me in that place and doing better work. The logic being that uh, the just the logistics of travel take up enough time that you can't engage as much. Yeah, and every time you do, a, because I move all of my, not all of my things. Yes, there's still things in your house, mom, <laughs> but all of my day-to-day things with me. And so every time I have to pack up what feels like my whole life and get to an airport and deal with finding my new housing, finding the grocery store and the coffee shop and the, you know, yeah, the lunch it's a lot place. Of labor. It's a lot of effort. You lose at least three days, no matter how short mm. the transit is or how long. So, so we're looking at a month to three months. A month to three months right now. What, apart from you mentioned traveling with family or meeting up specific people for scheduled things, what... um dictates where you might be interested in going weather food internet speeds um i like going somewhere new at least three times a year so somewhere that i'm not familiar with like romania was really eye-opening and really interesting and i I realized i want to spend more time in eastern europe now Mm. Um, and i really want to get to africa i'm dying to get to senegal now because i was looking at it for this winter and then ultimately decided against it. But next year, do you have communities that you sort of reach out to in, um, in the places that you go, or would you be likely to go somewhere knowing no one? Both. Um, sometimes I really like going places where I know people like I'm headed to Buenos Aires next year. And that's going to be easy because I was there two years ago. My friends who are from there have been petitioning me to come back. And so I'm excited to see them again. Um, but I went to Romania just to catch up with one of my friends. Mm. And then I was there for a little bit without her, which was completely fine and quite nice, actually. We've talked about micro decisions or sort of uh, pivots, and it sounds like this lifestyle that you see as one big decision is really just a series of micro decisions as well, because every next place is you're deciding to go somewhere new instead of to stay there forever. Yeah. But I think in some ways, like I didn't have a lease for a very long time when I lived in New York, I was month to month because I was terrified of making a decision that would feel like a trap. Hmm. And in this way, even though I'm deciding to constantly be moving and oh, I'll decide to go here, I'll decide to go there. I have the freedom to decide to go anywhere mm-hmm. that I can get a visa. And it's, so it's, it's nice. And I think that's part of why I don't plan six months out like I'm supposed to be. I'm shooting for three months right now. That sounds really sufficient to me. Um, yeah, and it's really interesting. I, I think there is a kind of person who has a bigger appetite for making lockdown decisions versus the kind of person who would prefer to feel free to have their options open. And there's that's a spectrum of people, I think. 
Absolutely. I'm a micro decision sort of person. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I'd rather make a hundred small decisions than one big one that I can't reverse. Yeah. That you're stuck with for any finite amount of time. Yeah. Um, do you think that staying in one place is on the horizon in the short term or the long term or never? Um, I'd be reluctant to say never just because that's a really long time. I don't think it's likely in the short term and actually or the long term. But what I realized um, about a year ago, I was going through some old diaries and about thir- 13 or 12 or 13 years ago, maybe I had written down about how I wanted t- to travel seasonally like a nomad hmm. and have three or four places that I sort of circled between. And I'm coming back around to that idea where I'm like, oh, okay, I really, really like Columbia. And I think I could see myself spending on average two or three months a year there. Mm. And I just need to find like two or three other places. And then I think I'll have my my circuit. Wow. Which could change based on different factors. Right. You're, you won't be locked into anywhere. I won't be locked in. Um, That's a really fabulous life that you're designing. I feel like. Um, I feel like when you pitch that, there's so few people in my mind who'd be like, no, that sounds horrible. Right. <laughs> Except your grandma, I guess. Well, I think she might come around to that. Right. She'd love to visit you at your each seasonal home, surely. She's not visiting me in any of them. I have to go visit her. But my mom is really, really keen on this. She's like, so you should go visit this place. I'm like, mom, that's a retirement community. What am I going <laughs> to do there? I would love it if you went to go nomad at the retirement community. Right? But she did. She came to visit me in Thailand, which was really cool. Wow, that's awesome. And I keep trying to get her to come visit me again. But, you know, my nephew's super cute and she keeps going to visit my nieces and nephews instead, which is fair. I would too. You're like, I'm not a baby. I'm way less interesting than they are. It's fine. I understand. You're making me think about about the irreversibility of decisions because I totally get where you're coming from. Like signing a lease sounded like not my style because I just wanted to have the freedom to change my mind at any point. Um, and that, I don't know, I, I have some complicated history with indecision as a concept, right? I felt like I'm an indecisive person, but that's a very decisive choice to like decide on freedom. Um, but you're also making me think about how irreversible is anything really like what's a truly irreversible decision i can't think of a one. baby yeah yeah baby's pretty for 18 years you've got a baby yeah you care and for. your whole life realistically well yeah but let's just say at least 18 years wow yeah that's a great example yeah i thought about this a lot <laughs> but you know a one-year lease you can get out of that <laughs> oh you can i mean a lot of this is what i realized a lot of decisions you make can be solved with money yeah, it's just a question of how much money. Right. I mean, and I guess you could send your kid to boarding school. So that's also a question of money. That's just going to weigh on your subconscious. Well, uh, yeah. question of good parenting versus mm-hmm. not. But hey, um, but yeah, leases, plane tickets, a marriages, lot of, mar- a lot of the, these things can be changed as far as decisions. As long as you have enough money to throw at them. Wow. Um just not having a baby. Um yeah, I'm I'm good. that's that's going to I'm going to be marinating marinating on that for a while. I do really think what holds so much of us back from trying things out 
is this false perception that we won't be able to reverse it. No, you can reverse a lot, a lot. So how are things going now? What's in the immediate short term? How are you uh, several years into your career change? How is it going? And also kind of simultaneously, where do you want to geographically be next? Um, well, I know where I'm going to geographically be next. I'm super excited about it. I'm going to be with my nephews mm. and my sister will murder me if I say where they live. So I'm not going to Bad but I idea, be with yeah. them. Yeah, no, no, no. Unless I said it earlier, in which case I'm really sorry. I don't think you did. Okay, great. Uh, so I'll be with them. And then after that, I'm going to Argentina, which I'm so excited about. Summertime in Argentina. My wow. friend and I are going to go do a trip up to Mendoza. I'm going to go pop over to Uruguay and see Foca, my friend, and drink a whole lot of Tanat, which is really good Uruguayan wine. Mm. And um, as you, I think I mentioned, I work with some cannabis industry clients. We haven't even talked about that. We need to spend a few minutes on this. Well, yeah. So I work with cannabis industry clients. And one of my favorite things about being in the industry is visiting different cultures and seeing what their cannabis culture is like. It's so different. Yeah, that's fascinating. So talk a little bit. Is this in regard to Uruguay? Oh, yeah. So Uruguay was um, one of the first countries to legalize. Like it was before Canada. It was the, um, now I'm brain farting, the co-ops. or They called them something funny. Or I remember them being funny. Maybe it was the Tanat. Um, we're just starting to open when I was there last time two years ago. Mm. And so I couldn't walk in, but I went to see the museum and I talked to my friend and um, one of his friends and someone in a cannabis group that I belong to who lives in Uruguay. And I had long conversations about how the culture was changing and everything. So I'm really curious to see what's been happening in Argentina and what's been happening in Uruguay. And certainly things are changing all over Latin America. There are companies that are setting up their grows in Peru and Chile and Colombia. And the impact that Canadian legalization so far is having on different parts of the world is really interesting. And I think if the U.S., um, depending on how it goes in the U.S., that can also be really impactful, like the culture shifts as well. I'm really curious about the link between those two. And I'm also curious, was that trip you just described two years ago pivotal to you wanting to explore that professionally? Yeah. Or was there another moment? Um, I have always been really intrigued by things that have been socially unacceptable becoming acceptable. Yeah. Because you have to remember my background. Um, some of my family is very religious on both sides. And so my father's side, um, religious Muslims, like, you know, drinking's not allowed and eating pork and all of these different things. And so they're not acceptable to these people. But my mother's side of the family, quite a lot of them drink because it's perfectly acceptable in Judaism. And so what, what, what does that mean? What does yeah. different societies, how do they feel about it? And how do I feel about it? Right. And being exposed to two viewpoints on the same thing as since you were a young child gives you this like natural inclination to make your own choice. Right. And to explore why people think that way and what's the history behind it? What's the logic? And is it a personal decision or is it something that people feel they need to 
push their decision on others. Right. And I find that really, really interesting as well. Have you found this to be like a really fast moving avenue for you professionally? I would imagine there's just a lot going on. There is a lot going on. Um, I've decided to be very careful about who I work with, mm. partially because I had one awful client. And so I've realized the cannabis industry is really important for me professionally because historically there were a lot of women leaders mm. and I loved that. And now the percentage of women leaders in the cannabis industry is shrinking as you know, the big companies like the beer companies and the cigarette companies and Silicon Valley money starts to pour in. I think it can be good because it's normalizing things, but at the same time, it's pushing women out. Yeah. And that's really problematic because women have been a lot of the movement and a lot of women that I know who are involved in the industry are doing it from a place of caring, of wanting to help people. And so we we need people like that as leaders in every industry. Yeah. But also I think it's important that people, women not be pushed out of the cannabis industry. So I love working with women, especially mm. I will work with men. Um, but it's very values based work for me. Whereas some of the other clients that I work with, it's just, Oh, you're doing something interesting and it's not necessarily um, a personal moral imperative to help you. <laughs> That's really interesting. Was that, um, how did you first, very first start working with cannabis clients? Was it really um, based on that moral judgment or was it, um, did something happen your way by chance? Or? Well, the first time I realized it could be a work thing because I only started working with um, cannabis industry clients a couple of years ago after I'd made the career shift. My brother's wife, my sister-in-law, runs and i believe she's still running a nonprofit pushing for legalization mm. and so i was helping her with her website because it was terrible <laughs> and she was talking about a lot of industry stuff because she she knows a lot um and she will educate you whether you want to learn or not which in my case i did so it was great but so i was helping her with that stuff and i realized oh what i'm doing for her i could do for other people mm. and Yes, there's a lot of money into the industry, which is always nice because I do like to get paid and live indoors and eat, but more I can have an impact. Like I'm not going to be one of those people who is out figuring out how to grow something right? or package it or ship it. Like I'm not on the ground and I don't want to physically be in Denver or wherever because it's cold in Denver, <laughs> um, but I can, I can help. I can help. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a great lesson on contributing to what matters to you in the ways that you are best able and living the like exact lifestyle you want while you do it. It's pretty good. I'm really lucky. And I look at it, I'm like, I don't, I don't know how I got this lucky, but I am thrilled and I'm just going to not screw it up now. I think it was luck and a lot of bravery. And uh, I don't know, you're someone who feels like, I'm sure you don't feel this way every day, but you seem to have life all figured out. And you've taught me a lot in this hour. Well, I'm glad. And I hope you'll come visit me wherever, like just uh, everywhere. I'll come visit you everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere's good. Just the warm places I recommend. Cool. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I have some closing credits for you guys. Uh, my theme song is by Nation of Language. Check them out wherever you get your music. Radio Free Brooklyn is launching an after-school program for local teens in 2019 to use media, to learn media literacy 
through hands-on podcast radio making guided by local professionals. If you'd be interested in interested in participating or donating to this program, go to radiofreebrooklyn.org slash after school. All donation donations are tax deductible, as are your donations to Radio Free Brooklyn in general. Um, I'm not gonna be here next week. We have uh, you know, a holiday. I'm going to be in Miami with my family. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. Um, So I'll be back at you in two weeks with a new guest. Thank you for listening. Bye. is dark Every light on this side of the town mm-hmm. Suddenly it all went down Now we'll all be brothers of mm-hmm. The fossil fire of the sun Someone must have set him up Now they'll be working in the cold gray rock Now they'll be working in the hot mid